the most dominant and pressing question that has been on the minds of churches, church leaders, and pastors over the past couple of months has been, what does it look like to be the church during the coronavirus crisis? What does it mean to be the church during a time of isolation and quarantine and shelter-in-place orders? But there's a looming question that is even more important, I believe, and that question is, what does the church look like after all of this is over? What does it mean to be the church after coronavirus? Grace and peace, everybody. It's Pastor Leon, and this is the PastorCast. Today, we are going to begin a new series in the PastorCast that is going to be taking a look at the future of the church. And I'm not talking about the future of the church like in the next generation or the future of the church and the next century. I'm, I'm talking about the future of the church in like a few months because everything has changed. Everything has changed. The coronavirus crisis has absolutely transformed the way that we not only do church now, the church is completely different than the way that church was even a couple of months ago. I mean, it's hard to believe, but there's been a transformation in, uh, particularly in the United States, which is my context, but I think it's, it's happening around the world. Um, as uh, as states and nations and uh, municipalities and, and all the rest of the way that we organize ourselves, how they've been responding to the coronavirus crisis by shutting down, by sheltering in place, by imposing uh, restrictions on how people can gather. The churches have been affected. And the vast majority, the vast majority of churches in America are no longer meeting in person. They're no longer conducting any of their business in person, live with one another. Um, There are some exceptions, obviously, but uh, they're, for the most part, that is the case. Uh, And so everything has changed. But what I I don't want to talk so much about what has changed and what's happening now, because uh, obviously the things that are happening now are going to affect what happens later. What I want to be talking about is what comes next after coronavirus, after all of this is over with, what does the church look like? Before we start thinking about what comes next, let's go back just a bit. And when I say just a bit, I mean, let's go back a long time, Uh, back to the Reformation. Uh, the uh, Protestant Reformation uh, that uh, historians usually date uh, beginning, officially beginning, so to speak, in 1517 uh, with the publication of Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. Uh, And uh, it sort of ended around 1555 with what is known as the Peace of Augsburg, which allowed for the coexistence of Catholicism and Lutheranism in Germany. And then again, Uh, probably a more definitive date would be 1648 uh, when the 30 years war uh, in Europe ended. And so the Protestant Reformation was initially not uh, something that was um, meant uh, to uh, 
uh, to create something new, uh, to create a new kind of church. It was a call to purify the church. Uh, so Luther and the other reformers that were sort of operating in and around that time, uh, what they wanted uh, was uh, they wanted uh, to, uh, uh, to sort of cleanse the church of what they saw were uh, excesses. Um, because at the time, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, which was the only church, basically, other than the, uh, the Eastern Church, so in the West, uh, the Catholic Church was dominant. <clears throat> and uh, they were actually doing things like selling uh, indulgences. Uh, so basically, you could buy your way out of sin. Like if you, did, if you committed a sin, uh, you could you know, purchase penance uh, and, uh, and you know, sort of pocket those, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, and uh, you, would be, you would be cool. Um, and so, among other things, that was one, one of the things that Martin Luther was protesting, but he wanted uh, to purify the church. That was what he was calling for. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, how that ended was he ended up being excommunicated and then was sheltered uh, by uh, Friedrich, who was uh, the ruler of Saxony uh, in uh, what is now modern-day Germany. And so, uh, eventually... Uh, there were other reformations that began uh, in Switzerland. You have Ulrich Zwingli and then uh, John Calvin, uh, who uh, was French, but then was a, initially was a, initially uh, you know began his work in in France, but then was invited to settle in Geneva, uh, and uh, and from there uh, all of the different sort of Protestant um, offshoots for Scotland and France and. Uh, the Low Countries, and uh, which would be, you know, the Dutch, um, you know, so all of that sort of sprang out of that, and of course made its way into England, uh, of course. So all of that happened uh, as a disruption. So it was a disruption within the church, and so there's all kinds of disruptions. This one is probably the one that is the easiest to mark and measure. So we go all the way back. Uh, to that time period, and we think about the disruption itself and how the church responded. Um, and the church responded in an interesting way, which is how the church always responds to any kind of disruption, whether it happens both within and without the church. So if there's cultural disruption, uh, societal disruption, or in this case, there was a disruption that happened as a result of theological differences and, and uh, struggles um, over the excesses of the church and particularly the priestly class. Um, and so the way that this works, with the way the church operates is there's four basic things that happen when there's a disruption. Uh, first of all, there's a division over what uh, is considered heresy. Uh, and so uh, Luther was branded a heretic and was uh, excommunicated, which basically meant that he could be uh, uh, executed for his heresy. And that, in fact, was what the... Uh, um, the uh, church wanted. That's what the church leadership, particularly the Pope, Pope Leo, that's what he wanted, uh, was Luther to be executed. But he escaped. Uh, but there was a division over heresy. Uh, so that's, that's typically what begins once the disruption happens. Uh, people will choose sides and then uh, there will be accusations of people who are committing heresy, uh, which essentially means that they're going against what's traditionally held by the church. Now, of course, Luther believed that um, that the Bible, that scripture was the ultimate authority and not the church. And so that was a fundamental difference, obviously, between him and the church leaders at the time. So what follows, uh, the second step that happens uh, whenever there's disruption in the church is that there's schism. Uh, and so schism has happened uh, in a variety of ways over the years. 
Um, you know, there's major schisms, of course, that go all the way back to where the um, Eastern uh, Orthodox, the Eastern Church split with the Roman Church over um, issues of uh, surrounding the Trinity and Trinitarian language. So there was a schism that resulted in that where they split uh, in this context within the Reformation. There's a split between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, what then became the Protestant movement. Uh, so the church ends up splitting. The third thing that happens out of that is there's innovation and reform. Uh, and so um, the Protestant movement then began to innovate. You know, obviously then it was putting the Bible in the hands of the average uh, everyday person uh, in their own language. So it was no longer just in Latin or just in Greek, um, but it was in the language that the people could read. And so that had been going on for quite some time, uh, you know, dating all the way back to, to Wycliffe in the days of Tyndale. But these people were all um, branded heretics as well, and they, were, they predated Luther by, by, uh, by quite a long time. But that's essentially what happened is the innovation began um, uh, where Luther basically he used the advent of the printing press to have much more success than any of the people that went before him. He was a master at being able to uh, use the printing press to disseminate information, to disseminate his theology and his beliefs and his ideas about reform within the church. <clears throat> and so there was innovation and there was reform that happened. Uh, coincidentally, there was also some reform that eventually happened within the Catholic Church. So the movement itself uh, created an existential question for the, the Catholic Church at the time. Uh, and it began to, to go through a, a series of reforms as well. So innovation and reform is the third thing that happens once there's a disruption. And then the fourth thing that happens is there's a rise of fundamentalism. So what happens is typically um, there are groups that decide that uh, that neither side, really, in the terms of the schism, uh, they're, they're unsatisfied with how things have gone. And so they retreat kind of into their corners. Um, and so there's always a group that ends up uh, sort of uh, returning, so to speak, to the tradition, returning uh, and turning back from the innovation and kind of uh, wanting to keep things as they are. Uh, and so that invariably is what happens in any kind of disruption that happens within the church. There's a division over uh, heresy, uh, there's schism, there's innovation and reform, and then the rise of fundamentalism. All these things are basically what uh, have happened throughout the centuries as the church has faced one disruption after another. There are other examples of disruption that have happened in recent years. The first was perhaps uh, within the American context, the disruption of 9-11. Um, there was a huge disruption that happened as a result of that. So sort of an existential moment within our American culture. Um, it spread to the rest of the world as well, obviously. But I mean, it was particularly an American issue for a while. Um, but that created a disruption that then affected the church. And so people... Uh, found themselves on opposite sides of the issue when it came to how to respond uh, to that uh, particular disruption. And of course, the same thing happened. Uh, you know, people were, uh, people had controversy over what was heresy. Um, uh, and uh, there was schism that it resulted in that. There were people, there were 
the church became split to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, that same kind of struggle that, that happened all the way back in the Reformation uh, played itself out again after 9-11. And that was a cultural and sort of a societal disruption, uh, not just something that happened within the church. And again, we see additional disruptions that happen when we start to talk about issues of gender equality and LGBTQ uh, rights and uh, marriage equality. All of those disruptions that happened within culture as we see culture sort of responding and, uh, and there's this sort of upheaval that, uh, that happens as a result of that and change uh, begins to, uh, to take root within culture itself. The church then uh, responded to that and has continued to respond to that in ways uh, that play itself out exactly the way that it did in the Reformation. Uh, heresy, issues of heresy, then schism, then innovation and reform as people began to move forward, as churches began to establish new uh, ways of thinking about the Bible, new ways of thinking about the inclusion of people or the exclusion of people, um, and then um, the rise of fundamentalism as people kind of retreat into their respective corners when it comes to these kinds of issues. So the church has responded in that way just about every single time that there's a disruption. And so the question that we have to ask is, is the church going to respond in the same way to this disruption? And what makes this disruption so much different than anything that we have ever seen? Because the coronavirus crisis is something that has never been seen before now we've had pandemics, uh, you know, and that's absolutely true. There have been pandemics in human history, obviously, but in the way that things have played themselves out, in the particular context within which we live, in a world that is entirely connected, that is a global economy. I mean, all the rest of it, all the things that you could say, uh, with a 24-hour news cycle, the advent of social media, all of those kinds of things. Obviously, it changes everything. This is a disruption like no one has ever seen. So what makes this particular disruption so much different than any of the other ones that we've been talking about? What makes it different than any other pandemic disruption that the world has ever faced? Well, there's a few things, actually. I, I actually see four sort of differences in what makes this so completely unique. Um, the first thing is that this is something that everyone has experienced. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone, everyone everywhere. There's hardly a place on the globe that has not been affected by the coronavirus. Uh, there are hardly any people in the whole world uh, that haven't been affected by it, at least in some capacity. So this is a global experience. This is something that everyone has felt in some way, shape, or form. And on top of that, not only are people experiencing it on a global scale, not only are we all being affected by it in some capacity, technology has become a connector in ways that uh, have never happened in human history in terms of pandemics or in terms of these kinds of disruptions. 
we have the ability to have all kinds of information, to be connected to people all around the world, to have uh, the latest sort of knowledge, so to speak, about what's happening in the world around us, whether it's good or bad, or whether some of the knowledge or some of the information is correct or incorrect. Um, that's not really the point. The point is that technology has connected everyone, and it's also connected everyone in ways that, um, you know, have been kind of unexpected. You know, people are finding new ways then to be connected through technology to continue doing their work, to continue uh, being um, uh, to being in relationships with people, and to to be connected to family and to friends, but also. Uh, the church has begun to use technology in ways that it probably never has uh, in terms of, you know, the wider church. There's plenty of congregations. There's plenty of, of individual churches that have been innovating and have been doing these kinds of things and using technology to their advantage, uh, broadcasting to wider um, audiences. I mean, from a long time ago, I mean, all the way back from the time of radio, uh, when uh, you know some congregations, some pastors, you know, saw that as an innovation, saw that as a way to reach people, um, and uh, use that to their advantage. Uh, the print materials, of course, have always been something that have been used uh, by the church to reach a wider audience. But now, more than ever, individual churches, like in the middle of nowhere, can reach people from you know as close as their next door neighbors in a small town in the middle of Texas, all the way around the world. So technology has been able to uh, be a huge connector for us. The other thing I think that is different about this is uh, the church has responded or had to respond in interesting ways. There have been a lot of blurred lines when it comes to traditions. Uh, churches that have resisted technology, have resisted broadcasting services, resisted the use of video and other kinds of equipment in order to bring their message to their congregations, wherever they happen to be, um, those lines have been blurred. I remember uh, years and years ago when uh, I first tried to start doing some innovation in the church that I used to serve, um, we were using video and we're using monitors and using all kinds of things in our casual worship service, the worship service that was attended um, by a much younger audience. Uh, and then the traditional worship service, we didn't have any of those innovations. There were there was none of that technology that was uh, that was used. And part of the reason why is because I, the folks were so resistant to it. I had a woman that had been part of that church forever. She'd been a member for years and years and years, and uh, you know was a very prominent member in the church. And told me that if I ever tried to put televisions into the sanctuary, into the traditional 100 year old sanctuary, that she would leave the congregation and she would stop giving and. So I had those kind of threats like <laughs> quite a bit uh, from people who were resistant uh, and the blurred lines have begun to happen. That same church now uh, uses video and uses cameras and uses monitors uh, in their worship service. Um, and then there's other things that have been blurred. Sacraments have been blurred uh, when it comes to tradition. It happens in all kinds of contexts and all kinds of denominations, even within the Catholic context um, the idea of sacraments, um, although it's still, you know, sort of held very tightly, um, you know, there's some blurred lines there as well as, as priests are doing mass over the, the Internet on Facebook Live. Um, and in our own denomination, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, 
Um, there were official sort of declarations that say that virtual communion is fine. You can you can break bread. You can do all the stuff in the context of your your live streaming worship or video worship, and invite your congregation to go ahead and break bread and drink from whatever cup that they have available at their homes. So those are those are things that have become blurred. You know the idea of sacraments and community. Worship is different. Uh, worship is all virtual now for most congregations. Mission has had to be changed, you know, to something that is that is completely different than what we used to do. Um, we're no longer able to do sort of the hands-on, face-to-face kind of things that we were doing. We're trying to find innovative ways, honestly, to get the resources directly to the organizations and to the people that need them um, without really, you know, kind of, uh, having a, an, a go-between to a certain extent. Uh, and then uh, all of the paradigms of community have been transformed, what it means to be community. Um, there was a time when people would argue that virtual community, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, uh, even way back in the days of, uh, of MySpace, um, you know, where, where all of these social media, ga- you know, places where people were gathering kind of virtually, um, that these were not community. They weren't real community. There was a lot of arguments about that. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been kind of keeping track of over the years is, is the, are those arguments, uh, you know, kind of paying attention to that. You know, what really does constitute community for some generations and for some people uh, would not be community for others, you know, because this difference between face-to-face and, and virtual. But now what's happening is we're starting to realize that we can continue to have community. We can do it via Zoom. We can do it via Facebook Live. We can do it in a variety of ways where people can actually sometimes in real time be able to comment, be able to uh, to ask questions, be able to interact with one another and with whoever's preaching and whoever is teaching. So um, these are the kinds of things that are that are changing the idea of, of community. So our paradigms have changed. So this is something completely different. It's never been seen before. It's never been experienced before. We are in a new world, brothers and sisters. <laughs> So where do we go from here? What does the church need to do differently? Well, the first thing that I think that needs to happen is we need to recognize the moment and realize that this is unlike anything that we've ever seen. And so we cannot approach it in the same way that we've always approached all of the disruptions that have happened in culture and society and even within the church. Because if we approach it with the same mentality, we're going to end up doing the same tired old things over and over again. Case in point is what happened after 9-11. After 9-11, after this incredible national tragedy that we all experienced to those of us in America and then even beyond, but after this incredible tragedy, all of the church talking heads and thinkers and people that were writing about the future of the church, they all said the same basic thing that everyone's going to come flooding back to church and so you better be ready. You better be ready because when they come back to church, you got to put your best foot forward because This was all about leveraging the moment for church growth. It was all about leveraging the moment to get more people to to come to church or to come back to church, those that had left. The problem was that everything around everyone had changed. I mean, there was this incredible tragedy that had happened, but 
there was a transformation that occurred within society and, and there were transformations that had been occurring long before that. And so what happened was people did come back to church. I mean, there was a lot of people that returned to church after 9-11. The churches were flooded on those first couple of Sundays, but then people realized that they left the church because of all the reasons that still existed within the church, that nothing had really changed. That's because we approached that particular disruption as something to be leveraged. And I see that happening in every kind of disruption that the church, the people within the church, the leaders, the thinkers, all these kinds of people, um, they want to leverage the moment for something. We can't approach it that way anymore. We need to be able to, to see this as something completely different and not to see it as a problem to be solved, but as something that we all experienced and the church is uniquely positioned to speak into that if, if, if it is willing to be courageous, if it is willing to be inclusive, it is willing to innovate and to change and to be transformed as well. So we need to stop approaching this particular disruption as something to be leveraged for a particular agenda. And that's something that we all need to give up, those of us who are a part of the church and work within the church and want to see the church continue, to see the church thrive in, in this new environment. So that's the first thing that we need to do is to change the way that we view this. The second thing that we need to do is we need to realize that our ideas of community have changed, that everything is different now. Uh, the way that people view community is completely different. It's a fallacy to believe that just because people have been isolated and quarantined and, and shelter in place and not able to be together, that that's something that they're going to want in spades months after all this is over with. You know, people are going to be changed by this. But to just assume that what they're going to want is to want to come back to church and want to be part of a church community and just to uh, believe that, that it's simply by existing and simply by uh, marketing and putting out some new signs or having a good website or whatever it is that we do or having worship that's more entertaining or you know all the things that we've normally done to try to reach people uh, and to try to, to do what we would call innovation, none of those things are, are going to matter uh, to people because what they've done is they've started to realize that community is different. You know, they might long for face-to-face -face conversation. They might long to go out to dinner with friends. But in the end, after all is said and done and we return to like what would be considered normal, quote-unquote normal life, what people are going to realize is that something changed in the midst of this. They were able to create community in ways that they never dreamed that they would. And that's not going to change. It's not going to go away. So our ideas of community have changed. They've broadened. They've expanded in ways that we never dreamed. So we need to acknowledge that. We need to make sure that we are holding that along with the way that we approach this at the forefront of our mind. And the last thing that I think we need to acknowledge as a way to help us move forward is we need to realize that personal renewal personal renewal is going to precede change. That people are, are experiencing this coronavirus in their own particular ways, right? That this is, uh, even though we're all experiencing this together, there's a communal aspect of it. Everybody's been affected by it. Each and every person is dealing with it in their own particular way. 
Uh, and there's, there's a ton of individual stories about that, right? There's stories of hope, there's stories of tragedy, uh, but this is something that is very personal to a lot of people. And what's happening is we're starting to realize that personal renewal, that, that focusing on individuals, that, that not looking at people as sort of a, uh, a blanket sort of descriptor, you know, by, by just classifying people as either in the old sort of ways that we used to do this in the church, the saved and the unsaved, the lost and uh, the found, you know, the, those that are, that are churched and those that are unchurched. I mean, we all always kind of classified people in those categories. And then the categories go even farther, right? Uh, within the, the church itself, you know, progressive and conservative, traditional and, and uh, contemporary. I mean, all of these different ways that we've used to sort of, uh, to, to sort of place people in categories, they, they need to be blown up. Uh, they no longer exist in the way that we understand them. You know, so what we need to be focused on more and more if we're going to move forward into this new environment within which we're going to be living and moving and breathing and trying to be the church is that we need to focus on people. We need to focus on the fact that people uh, crave renewal. They crave restoration. They crave uh, their own uh, big story uh, within this great story that we are all experiencing now. They want to be able to say something about this um, that's important, that is, that is part of, uh, of who they are, how they got through this, how they were able to move beyond it. And the church has a way, if it's able, has a way, probably more than any other institution, has a way of being able to speak into that, to be able to help people find meaning, to be able to help people find purpose after the fact, to be able to help people to put this into perspective and to frame it in a way that they're able then to be able to see the divine in it. Now, this is gonna be transformative uh, if the church then not becomes the arbiter of renewal, the arbiter of spiritual transformation, the arbiter of, uh, of growth when it comes to faith and life, but a partner, a partner with people, uh, being able to, to come alongside people no matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what their background is, and to be able to help them find their place in God's great big story of redemption. About two years ago, we started broadcasting our worship services on Sunday morning live on Facebook. Uh, and on any given Sunday, we'll probably have about 350 to 400 people that'll gather together and worship in person. And we would have maybe 15 folks, if we were lucky, that would be watching our Facebook live. But we've been doing this for a couple of years, every single Sunday, broadcasting live to an audience of about 15 people. This Sunday... This Sunday, I'm going to be gathering with a small group of folks in an empty sanctuary, and we're going to broadcast our worship services live on Facebook once again. But this time, we're probably going to have anywhere between five and 600 people that may be watching at a single time. And then many of those people will share the worship services on their own Facebook pages where they'll be watched by their own friends and their own family and connections. And what we've realized is over the course of a week, when we go back and look at the metrics and the ways that we measure 
uh, who's watching and how they're watching and all that kind of stuff. We're realizing that there are thousands of people that are viewing these worship services. Worship services that are broadcast from a mid-sized church in Austin, Texas. We have about 700 members. It's not huge by any stretch of the imagination, bigger than most Presbyterian churches, but but not, not a mega church by any means. And yet, we are reaching people all the way around the world. Thousands of folks are interacting with us in our worship services that are being broadcast live. This is unprecedented. This is something that is absolutely transformative. And we need to be paying attention to this. That the new reality, the new environment within which the church is moving is one that's completely changed. And one of the things that I want to talk about a little bit later on as we start to to dive into this more deeply is what are we going to do, practically speaking? What does the church need to do in order to step fully into this, to do those three things that we talked about, uh, to to change the way that we approach our problems, uh, to realize that community, that the idea of community is different, and then be able uh, to realize that we need to start identifying and walking with and focusing on individuals and on people who have stories that are real and that are true to them and that we need to be able to speak faith and grace and peace and abundant life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give to all of us. We need to be able to speak that into this particular moment. And so this is an unprecedented era. It's something that's incredibly new. But I can't wait to see where we go from here. If we are courageous and if we're brave, we'll be able to follow the Spirit as the Spirit leads us into a new era of the church. I hope you stay tuned for more of this. We're going to have some interviews with some interesting folks, and we're going to be talking through each of the things that the church needs to do in order to thrive and to be vibrant in this new environment. Thanks for being with us. I hope uh, that the Pastor Cass continues to speak to you. Uh, and if this is something that interests you and you want to know more about it, you can always email me at leon, L-E-O-N, at shpc.org. Um, I also uh, do a daily uh, devotion. I do a live broadcast every single day, Monday through Saturday, through the corona crisis. I'll be doing it Monday through Saturday at 9 a.m. Uh, Central Time on my Facebook page, and that's Leon Bloater. It's easy to find. Um, You can also subscribe to this podcast if you're listening to it uh, in another fashion. You can subscribe to it on iTunes and have it dropped into your your podcast batch along with the rest of your podcasts. Uh, And uh, there's also a way for you to subscribe to our emails uh, that we give uh, each and every week for the daily devotions. You can get them in written form as well. You you can can subscribe to them by going to shpc.org. Uh, and there's a drop-down menu that will give you the opportunity to subscribe uh, to our daily prayer series uh, and devotion series. So uh, I'd love it if you would do that. I'd love it if you would follow uh, us on Facebook as well, follow Shepherd of the Hills. You can receive all of our notifications of all the live broadcasts and all the interesting things that we're doing throughout this corona crisis. And we will see you next time or, or speak to you next time. Uh, See you virtually, I suppose. And uh, thanks for joining the PastorCast. We'll talk to you soon.